There's a general sense that we're trying to create a bit of a wilderness that's ours and that's private in our garden. Whereas a few years ago, I think gardens were much smarter. Mm. You know, they were much more likely to be quite showy and there would be maybe places where you would entertain. Whereas now there's a bit more emphasis on here's somewhere where I can really think about things, I can meditate, I can, you know, lie there and enjoy things. Mm. So I just very much enjoy actually monitoring where all of that goes. That was Alexander Campbell who joins us on the podcast today and she's the successful blogger of the Middle Size Garden and if you don't know that it's well worth checking out. She's on YouTube where she does lots of garden tours and things like that. Um, One you could spend a lot of time just viewing her her YouTube videos, as well as checking out her blog. She's written for the English Garden, Country Living, and has really been in garden industry for, for quite a long time now. And we, we chat all things specifically as well, the bit I really, really like, and I think um, she wants to get across and I want to get across as well, is that it doesn't matter if you've got a few little scrappy bits in a garden, a few nettles and things like that. Um, and in fact, she's saying that's, that's a benefit, something she'd like to see in her garden. So, yeah. A great uh, interview with Alexander, um, so yeah, well worth listening to. What I wanted to talk about as well is we're playing with the idea at the moment on the podcast to do one about our nursery. What you may or may not know is that we've been going for nearly 70 years. Uh, it's a family business. It was started by my my nan and granddad. Uh, it is now run by, my, by myself, my dad and my mum. Um, so still very much a family business. Um, I've got two children as well, so there's a potential it may turn into a fourth generation, who knows. Um, so yeah, we're toying with the idea of doing uh, one about the history of the, the nursery uh, and taking you around what we do really. You probably know we do flower shows, Chelsea and Hampton Court and things like that. Um, but there's be parts of the nursery that you, you don't know about that um, we thought people would be interested in. So we may well bring that later on in the year, maybe towards the end of summer. Um, so yeah, we're, we're timing the idea of doing that. So if you'd like to hear that, obviously get in touch and we'd love to hear your thoughts and, and maybe something you'd like to hear on the podcast. So without further ado, let's start the podcast. Hi, you're listening to Plants and Me, the podcast that is all about plants, gardening, and the people who are passionate about them with your host, Alan Lodge. Welcome to the podcast, Alexandra. Well, it's lovely to be on. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. We were uh, just chatting before we we hit record. It's a bit grey, but we were saying the the relief from the very, very hot weather in the garden has been quite nice recently. Yes, I think um, it is just quite hard doing all that watering at the moment, I Mm. find. Uh, We had a bit of rain on Sunday and I was very pleased. Yes, yeah, definitely. What part of the country are you in? Uh, We're in Kent. We're uh, we're in the northern Kent coast. Uh, It's Faversham. And uh, people probably know Whitstable or Canterbury better, but we're just about five or six miles away from Whitstable and about ten miles from Canterbury. We're the other side of the Thames Estuary to you. Oh, right. You're in Essex, are you? Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Well, it was the other day that we could actually see Essex from Whitstable. Oh, very nice. Is that common? It's quite rare, actually. You have to have a really, really clear day. And then you can just see the Essex coast in the distance. It's amazing, actually. Excellent. Very good. So tell me a little bit about you and your life in gardening. How did it all start? 
Well, I had always, I mean, I remember even being a very small child and wanting to live in a house with a, you know, a big garden. And we moved around a lot. Uh, and my father was um, a diplomat, so we tended to live abroad and, of course, in capital cities. So you never really had much of a garden. And then, of course, I moved to London when I grew up and worked and, of course, you know, lived in flats and, mm. you know, once again, didn't really have a garden. And eventually uh, got uh, got married and had children, had my first family home, which was a little house in London, but with a very, very little garden. And when we decided to move out of London, my husband, uh, you know, really wanted to live out of London and I just really wanted a house with a garden. So we've got a house now with a garden, which I call the middle-sized garden. <laughs> because when people say to me, oh, is it a big garden? Well, it is quite big if you have to look after it yourself, which I do. But if a real gardener, you know, somebody who works in gardening, mm. was to talk about it, they would call it a small garden. It's actually about a fifth of an acre. It's 100 foot long and 80 feet wide. Mm. And in gardening terms, that's a really tiny garden. And I find it quite amusing that um, size in gardens is so sort of different mm. considering who you're talking to. Yeah, so I just thought, I'm going to call it the middle-sized garden. <laughs> and that's the name of the blog and the YouTube channel. And the uh, the blog and YouTube channel was going very well. It is going well at the moment, thank you. Yes, it's um, it's been, I've been going for five years with the blog and about two with the YouTube channel. And once again, the YouTube channel is what a YouTuber would call a very small channel because it's only got 6,000 subscribers. But actually, they're all people who are really interested in gardening. So mm. and so that's great, actually. You can have some great conversations um, in the comments with YouTube in a way that blogs, blogs used to be all about comments, but they're less so now. I think people comment perhaps more on YouTube than they do on blogs. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And I think uh, gardeners as a whole, there are obviously exceptions, but gardeners as a whole are fairly new to YouTube. Yes, I think so. Um, there's a lot of, I think the vegetable gardeners and the allotment gardeners are much more used to consulting YouTube to find out how to do something. So there's quite a vibrant community of um, vegetable gardeners on YouTube. But in terms of what I call garden gardeners, you know, people who are more interested perhaps in flowers and shrubs and terraces and trees and things like that, um, I would say it's quite rare. And it's also, it's all across the world. So about, you know, a big chunk of the people who watch my channel in the States and they're in the Northern Hemisphere. And then there's a few in Australia and New Zealand mm. who've got a similar, they're in the southern, right the southern part. So they've got a similar climate to us here. And then we've got Britain and Northern Europe. So I quite like that it's, it's international gardeners talking to each other across the nation. Yeah, because yeah. so many of us in each country. Mm, interesting. And I've, I've got family in Melbourne, actually. And other than the, the warm weather is much warmer um, and yeah. the cool weather isn't quite as cool. You're right. It's a, it's a very, very similar climate, um, but a completely different culture when it comes to to garden there than, than what it is here. We're very, um, I suppose, obsessed might be the word. Um, I've just come back from Hampton Court and um, there's not many places in the world you get that many visitors to a garden show. Yes, and I get feedback from, uh, you know, people in Australia who watch the YouTube channel that they sort of say, well, I don't know as many people around here who are as interested as me in gardens. Although there are some fabulous um, gardens down in, in near Melbourne, there's the Diggers Club. Do you ever go to 
Melbourne and uh, I've been I've been once. Um, yeah. uh, my children. Well, uh, I went with my daughter uh, and my wife, um, and my son's a little bit young. We we wouldn't don't relish a a twenty four hour trip with an eighteen month old. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, not that one. It's a very tough flight. Mm. But if you do get there, there's some wonderful gardens uh, run by the Diggers Club, and they have they maintain heritage seeds and heritage plants and. Their sort of approach to gardening is what I call quite similar to the English approach of, you know, being really passionate about beds and planting and planting combinations and, you know, which variety and all that. And uh, so there are there are definitely pockets of of passionate gardeners. Mm, yeah, definitely. And we were just before again before we hit record. You mentioned you'd been a journalist for for some time now. Uh, was it always uh, gardening that you covered? Absolutely not, actually. And when I, once again, when I was very small, I always wanted to be a writer. And when I came out of university, I thought I would love to be a journalist, but I thought it would be too difficult to get into. And writing, advertising, copywriting was just becoming quite fashionable. And so I tried to get into advertising, copywriting, but they were, it was a bit of a recession and it was very difficult and I never got in. And one day I wrote an article about not getting into advertising and sent it to um, the advertising magazine campaign, who just published it. And it's actually quite rare for magazine. Magazines get sent articles all the time. Mm. And it's actually quite rare for them to publish it. And I had sent articles into magazines and they you know, mostly hadn't even answered. But in this case, they published it and it was shortlisted for a, uh, a journalistic award. And that gave me the chance to do freelance work. People you know, put me on because of that. And uh, then I started to work in the trade press, and then I worked my way up to, um, at that point, I was in the trade press for the beauty industry, and I then became a beauty editor on She magazine, and then on Harper's and Queen, and then I went across to Good Housekeeping as managing editor. And then I started to write about houses. And then when my children were small, I became freelance, and um, started really writing a lot about houses, and then I became a novelist. And I've written and had published nine novels and also nine books on interiors, some of most of which I have written with someone else, including the interior designers Nina Campbell and Kelly Hopham. And um and then from there I started to get interested in social media and I thought I should start and I was beginning to actually teach people about social media and blogging. And I then thought I should start a blog in an area that I was very interested in but which I didn't currently have a reputation in, to see whether the things that I was teaching people about blogging and social media actually worked. So I started the middle-sized garden, and in fact it did work, and now really it just takes up pretty much all my time. <laughs> running the middle-sized garden blog, the middle-sized garden YouTube channel, and I also write the gardening for people's friends. Mm. That's, a, that's a very brave professional test of your, of your skills there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, of course, if it hadn't worked, nobody would have known. I suppose <laughs> not. They wouldn't have had it. But I think I was on fairly safe ground. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was actually, I mean, it was fascinating. I am completely fascinated by this whole world of blogging and of YouTube. And I think it's very exciting for me as a professional to have gone through a whole career where I'm always working for editors or being commissioned by somebody, whether you're writing books or a journalist, to actually be able to do something where I'm the one in charge and it's all down to me. And that is so great. But it's also, you know, I miss having an editor. I'd love to have someone to say, well, what do you think we should do here? You know. Mm -hmm. 
And for people that don't know, which in- includes me, um, yeah, you you write write an article, and this isn't really relating to gardening at all. But you write an article. What does the editor actually do? They clearly read it, um, but do they send it back and say, "I don't like this bit. I don't like that bit." Well, when I was trying to get established, I worked on what was then Sweet Sweet Street um, in the days when it was in Sweet Street, and I used to do stints on the Evening Standard. And in those days, you typed up your your story and you handed it physically to the editor and if he didn't like it there was a spike on his desk and he would read it and he would just put it on the spike so that it was it was sitting on the spike and torn in the middle and then nothing was said and you had to go and do a different one (laughs) and that's the that's the origin of someone saying the story was spiked you may have heard people saying oh they spiked that story Mm. and that's what they used to physically stick it on the spike so that's that's an editor at the toughest end but the best end is when they'll say, oh, yes, that's good now, but I think you're taking too long to get to the point. Or um, you need to find out why someone said something like that. Or you haven't explained this properly. Or even quite simple things like, you know, you haven't given someone their full name and, and their job title. Mm. Um, because an editor is trying to read a piece of work in the same way as any reader. But any reader will have different things that they pick up on. So they're trying to say, well, for the reader to understand and enjoy this, they either need more information or they may need less information. Mm. It may be too wordy. It may be used too many adjectives. Um, So they go through with this sort of very analytical eye. And it's incredibly valuable, actually. And it is really useful. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Um, So then you you got into... Um, writing about gardening and things like that. Do you remember the first garden article or, or piece you did? I did do a bit for it was a garden magazine that started for a short period of time and has now gone under, and I'm afraid I can't even remember what it was called. <laughs> but I did do uh, some articles for them on what it was like being a gardener who knew very little and found themselves with a garden on their hands. Hmm. So I did do some of that. Uh, but when I started with the blog, um, I can't really remember. I think that one of the things that I've always written quite a lot about is trends, partly because of my magazine background, because we were always looking for what's new. And so I have a sense on the middle-sized garden of always looking at you know what's new, what's fashionable. And, for example, this most recent at Chelsea Flower Show and at Hampton Court and things like that, you know, there were much more trees than there have been. Mm. And there's a much more naturalistic planting and there's a general sense that we're trying to create a bit of a wilderness that's ours and that's private in our garden. Whereas a few years ago, I think gardens were much smarter. Mm. You know, they were much more likely to be quite showy and there would be maybe places where you would entertain. Whereas now there's a bit more emphasis on here's somewhere where I can really think about things, I can meditate, I can, you know, lie there and enjoy things. Mm. So I just very much enjoy actually monitoring the way all of that goes. And and those those trends um, and the bits that you notice at the various shows and stuff like that, do they then make it into your own garden? Uh, yes, up to a point, I think. I mean, obviously you can't keep changing your garden in a big way. And the other problem is, of course, is that I'm very, very busy. So I don't have much time to change my garden. But I think most people are in that situation anyway. So even if, whether you're working in, say, an office five days a week and you only have time for a garden at weekends, or whether you're someone like me who's freelance but is quite busy and therefore doesn't have time for my garden, 
um, I think you're always thinking, oh, well, that would be nice, but I actually haven't got time for it. So in the end, there's probably a few new things come up each year, you know, maybe a, a few different plants. Recently, I've noticed quite a trend, particularly at Chelsea, towards an acceptance of weeds. Yeah. You know, there were literally nettles and buttercups on some stands. And I find it quite difficult to stay on top of the weeding. And I've become much more, much more accepting of that. Mm. I sort of don't feel, oh God, that bed is full of weeds. I just sort of think, well, actually, I'm going to let that bed be full of weeds because I don't have time to use it. Mm. And I'm just going to try and make sure the weeds stay out of the main bed. So yeah. that's something that I've picked up from the shows and then using in the garden or not using <laughs> yeah and it's, it's quite interesting i find as well i have interviewed uh, um some people who do foraging and things like that and of course nettles you mentioned there um traditionally and in still many parts of the world are used as a vegetable um and we've okay. noticed certainly um because we're we're herb and, and chili specialists here on the nursery we've noticed uh people asking about i'm not sure what the right term is but let's say wild herbs um, definitely yeah. more of that around at the moment. I certainly, I want to, um, in fact, I specifically want to get more nettles in one of my beds because I've got a lot of bindweed in there and I don't think anyone's had a good word for bindweed, even with this new acceptance of weed. Hmm. Um, but I would like nettles because the other thing is, is that nettles are the top host plant for butterflies. Yeah. And, so, and nettle tea is fantastic. I mean, it's really good for sort of making you feel a bit invigorated, but not absolutely your head flying off the way coffee is and i haven't quite got around to nettle soup yet but i think i might mm. so um nettles for example certainly are something i would like to see much more of in my garden interesting um and if people were looking at your youtube and things like that where they haven't uh, seen it before what sort of things are you are you talking about on there one of the things that i do a lot of is things like garden tours and the main thing that I think is really good about that is that you can see more of a garden in a video than you can in photographs on a blog. So if I'm going around a garden, like about six weeks ago, I went to Graves High, which is the most fabulous English garden in Sussex. And it was originally designed by William Robinson, who is considered to be the grandfather of English gardening. He was the first person who worked in the Victorian times and he really did a lot against this whole business of sticking a whole load of very brightly coloured annuals in, in great blocks, and then hauling them out again and sticking something else in. He really said, you've got to work with nature. And he introduced a lot of perennials and shrubs and things to gardens. And his own garden was beautifully designed. And it's been restored recently by Tom Coward, uh, who's a gardener who, who trained at Great Dixter. And it's been restored both to acknowledge William Robinson's heritage and also to take it forward because that's what William Robinson would have done and so when I do a blog post about a garden like that I would also do a video so on the YouTube Middlefly Garden YouTube channel because you can just take people all the way down a path you don't mm. just have to show one photograph of a path yes. so that's very much what I do and in the YouTube channel I do tours of my own garden and I try to be honest about the bits that haven't worked. So, in particularly this issue of weeds, of course, is something that, you know, I think it's important to be honest about because otherwise people think, oh, well, you can have quite a biggish garden and do it yourself and be busy and not have weeds. Well, <laughs> that's just not true. You have to accept that 
time and effort and what you can physically do do affect your garden. Mm, yeah, definitely. Do you think there's there's issues with people thinking um, that uh, gardens could, especially actually from the shows, can be too pristine and it's very easy and when they they fail to have this pristine garden, they get quite down about it and sometimes even give up? Yeah, I think that is a big problem actually. I think it really is a big problem because when something doesn't work, I think it's a human sort of tendency to say, oh God, it must be my fault. Um, but quite often it isn't. You know, you may have been sold a plant that wasn't properly labelled. Mm. Um, uh, or, you, you know, the labels, some of them, some plants, particularly with annuals, the labels come in with care instructions that are kind of completely so vague as to give you no instructions at all. And um, also, there's so much difference in people's gardens. You know, if you've got a garden that's got very poor soil, you may not be able to grow the plants that they can grow in the show garden. And however much mulch you stick on and fertilising you do, it still may stay poor. You're probably better off saying, okay, well, my garden has poor soil. I'm going to go in that direction of those particular plants. And I think it takes a lot of confidence, which, of course, beginners never have, to say, well, I'm going to make up my own mind about this. It's not going to look like anything in the magazines. It's not going to look like a show garden. But it can still be beautiful. Mm. And um, that's something that even, I mean, I've now been gardening and for about 15 years and I've been writing about gardening and interviewing experts and you know for at least five or six years and I've only just got to the stage where I think well actually I'm going to make up my own mind about that you know yeah there's a plant called Orchida japonica which is a very it's a shrub with dark green leaves and yellow spots on the leaves and lots of people in gardening hate it well I think it really brightens up a, a dark corner so I've now decided to say, okay, well, I actually think it looks really good in that place. But, you know, lots of people walked into my garden and said, oh, you've got to get rid of that. <laughs> and until I knew more about gardening, I thought, oh, dear, I better, you know. Mm, yeah. So I think it does take a long time to bring up confidence. And um, I hope that what I do with the Middle Size Garden blog is to make people feel, well, I've been a bit informed, but I also realise I don't have to get it completely right. And it's also, if I get it wrong, it's not necessarily my fault. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And the one we come across the most um, is when people are growing seeds. Now, uh, I don't know whether I'm giving away a, a, an industry secret here, but traditionally, um, and uh, there's lots of people who don't do this now, but traditionally there used to be seed uh, seed merchants who would, um, they'd have a few different grades of seed and the, the best quality would go to the commercial growers um, because they, if they don't get germination, they complain and, and want refunds, etc. Um, and then the second rate of seed would go into the packets for the retail industry. Um, now, I'm not saying this happens now, but that's what traditionally used to happen. Um, and we've noticed definitely that when people sow a seed, they may follow the instructions. Like you said, the instructions aren't always that good. Um, and the moment they don't come through, pretty much always they will blame themselves. Um, yeah, and actually, as a, a we're readily admit as a as a commercial grower, um, we get stuff that doesn't germinate properly um, all the time, um, and this hundred percent germination pretty much doesn't exist with the majority of of plants. Um, and you've got weather, you've got light, you've got cold, you've got forgetting to water it, <laughs> um, remembering to water it, and then doing it too much, etc. Um, it's really, really quite tricky to to try and fool a plant into it, 
basically we're trying to make it think that it, it grows in the wild and it, that's just not the case. Yeah, I completely agree because um, one of the things I particularly notice is where you get people saying, oh, and the great thing about seeds is you can just throw them onto the ground and that's spring plants and you think, uh, no. Um, because certainly it took me a long time to realise that actually planting seeds directly into the ground tends to be quite unsuccessful. Mm. There are a few plants that I've found work. Obviously, things like poppies, which self-seed anyway, um, nasturtiums, things like that. All the good self-seeders, you can more mm. or less put them into the ground. But, you know, anything that you really want to grow, like spinach, um, I mean, you know, you really have to plant it in plug plants first. And then, as you say, there won't ever be 100% germination. And then one has to plant it out and defend it from drugs and everything like that. So it, I think seed growing is actually the kind of quite difficult end of gardening. Mm, yeah, definitely. Although, of course, it is fabulous if you can, you know, suddenly find yourself with some wonderful plants that are quite unusual because you bought the seeds in a way that you can't necessarily just walk into a nursery or garden centre and get the unusual annuals. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And actually, that's becoming more and more common. Um, I think the range of plants that garden centres sell is, is getting narrower and narrower. Yes, I think that's undoubtedly true. And, and once again, it's very affected by fashion, but this time not in a good way. So suddenly everything will be, you know, purple surfinias. And, you know, if you wanted something different, it's just not there. So I always grow a few plants. What I try to do every year is to grow one quite dramatic plant from seed, which I can use then to plug gaps in the border. And it's always such a sort of shouty plant that anyone coming into the garden goes, oh my God, what's that? You know, and then they sort of don't see the weeds at the back. Mm. And uh, this year it's uh, Ricinus, um, Ricinus communis, castor oil plant. Um, but in previous years, it's been things like um, oh, the staircase plant, Leonita clinorum. And it, that's a sort of massive, it grows to six, six feet or more in mm. one year. It's got little kind of tufty orange flowers, and pollinators love it. And, you know, you put it amongst your dahlias, and everyone just goes, oh, wow, what's that? And, um, you know, doesn't notice the vine weed climbing up it. <laughs> yeah, which is always a benefit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, the size of gardening. Uh, the size of garden, sorry, is is very relative. It depends on your your perspective. Um, now gardens are getting smaller and smaller. Do you think they present their own challenges? Absolutely. I, in a funny sort of way, though, having gardened in a very small garden in London, and my garden was twenty feet long and fifteen feet wide in London. That is small. Actually, that is very tough because often it's surrounded by shaded buildings. You certainly can't do any lawn type stuff. And, you know, the London slug and snail is a monster known only to itself. And so it's really difficult. There were a lot of things. It was shady, it was small. There were a lot of things against it. Whereas in a slightly larger garden, and I would say anything over 50 feet long, you've often got, you know, bits which actually are better for planting. And if you make those bits really showy and gorgeous, then people don't necessarily notice the bits that aren't working. So I would say a very small garden needs quite a lot of concentration. But equally, because it's small, you can invest more money per square foot. So you can have really nice paving and, you know, lovely raised beds or, you know, lovely bit of sculpture or something like that, because you're not having to extend that investment over 100 feet. 
Mm. Yeah, definitely. And would you have you got any top tips for people that find themselves with very very small gardens? Because um, it's it's becoming more and more common around the corner from us, and we don't live in a particularly uh, crowded area. Um, but even around the corner for us, the new new houses that they're putting up, the gardens are absolutely tiny. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think that the official average size of a garden in Britain is 50 feet long, but most new houses are not actually getting a 50 foot long garden. Or if they are, it can be quite an irregular shape. Mm. You know, it's not necessarily the width of the house and all the way down. So I think probably the best tip really, I, I, well, firstly, if a house is a new build, you're going to have massive problems on the soil because the build is just literally the rubble just goes in and then a whole load of topsoil goes onto the rubble and then they put a lawn on it so it looks good for the, the day you move in. But it's really hard to plant when there's a lot of builder's rubble around. So sadly, I think that a lot of dipping down and um, getting out builder's rubble is something that you probably have to do. And you can probably do a test, decide where your beds are going to be and dig down and see if you've got that problem. And if you have got that problem, be prepared to dig up the lawn. Because ultimately the lawn will fail if it's based on builder's rubble. Um, but the other thing, really, I think, is just to take a bit of time over it and to look at gardens around you and uh, go and visit. I mean, quite a lot of the NGS gardens now, for instance, are quite small. And also local towns and villages like Faversham, where I live, we have Faversham Open Gardens on the last Sunday of every June. And there are lots of small gardens there. And so having a look at other gardens is great. And then the most important thing is make sure you design in at least one tree. Because every tree, every garden needs a tree to anchor it. it. It gives a sense of proportion. And obviously it's fantastic for wildlife. It cleans up the air. And if there's a tree already in the garden and you don't like it, really think about whether the right sort of pruning could actually make that an attractive tree or whether you need to take it down and replace it. Because it takes quite a time for a tree to get to maturity. So if you've got one, see if you can make it work for you. Yeah, definitely. There's some really good tips there. And actually, I think as well, I, I'd add to that what, what you're going to use the garden for, because through, uh, if we're talking about a family, for a family's life, um, that changes dramatically from um, uh, maybe newlyweds who want to sit out there to uh, young children kicking footballs against your, your dahlias um, to, the, to the retired couple. Absolutely. I do remember there was a phase where people were building sand pits that could be changed into ponds. I'm not sure if that still happens, but obviously it's incredibly dangerous if you have small children to have a pond because they can so easily fall in yes. and drown. And um, meanwhile, the same, you know, mini pond turning into a sandpit. I mean, I slightly prefer in small gardens to have um, raised mini ponds because I do, I, I am concerned about people falling into water and small children falling into water, even if I don't myself have any, because obviously people visit. Yeah, I came across a product, um, I'm fairly certain they're still around, and if, if they're not, they, they really should be. It's a brilliant product. Um, I think it was uh, Hampton Court, I saw it two or three years ago, and the advertising for the product on the front of it was a guy looks like he was standing on a pond, walking on water, and it was this black mesh that allegedly could hold five or six people. That mm-hmm. Actually, when it was in the pond, if you really tried to you could see it but in general you couldn't see it i thought that was a brilliant product that is brilliant exactly i mean we did have a pond in this garden before when we moved in 
and we redesigned the garden after I'd been there. But we'd been here for about six or seven years and we redesigned the garden because in the end, I think it is a help to have the garden that, that you want. And it was it was actually a very well-designed garden. It had lovely plants. But in the end, it wasn't my garden. And I didn't feel that I was maintaining it well. I felt like it was just, it felt odd. It felt like a, something, you know, wearing clothes that don't really fit. It was mm. just not quite right. So we designed it, we designed it according to how we wanted it. And we took the pond out because we had had um, teenagers falling into the pond. You know, they'd just walk across the garden and then straight into the pond. They didn't even see it was there. There's one boy who will ever be known in this, this family as the boy who fell in the pond when he wasn't even drunk. <laughs> That's something you don't get over quickly, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. He's now about 28. He's still known as that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, now, a few questions uh, that we always always ask people, um, and it's interesting the responses we get. Um when you first started, maybe not professionally getting into gardening with your blogs and your articles and things like that, but when you first started getting into into gardening, was there a particular person or a book that really inspired you? Well, there were a few, and um, one of them was Helen Yem, who writes in The Telegraph. But she had has a book which was originally called Gardening in Your Nighty, and I think has been re-released as Gardening in Your Pyjamas, which says something about how fashions have changed, I think. <laughs> but it was a really good book which was quite realistic it was about this thing that i think we all do which is you get up in the morning particularly in the summer and you wander out into the garden before you know where you are you've done an hour's gardening and you're covered in mud but luckily it's only your night or your pajamas and some sickness chasing the wash um and so that was very helpful um sarah raven's books and courses i found very good uh, she's got a book called bold and brilliant gardening which is very good if you're a beginner because actually making a big showy statement when you're a beginner is relatively easy and it kind of gets compliments and you know it's a sort of shortcut to making the garden look quite stunning mm. but she also does courses and I think also if there are any garden people I mean most open gardens now do have courses on things like pruning and you know planting and planning your vegetable garden and even growing from seed and things and I found those short courses really really helpful Interesting. Yeah, um, definitely. I think um, even if it's not a course, you can go to the open gardens and, and, and to RHS gardens and things like that. And normally as a gardener, you'd just be able to tap on the shoulder and say, how do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> I think the gardening world is actually very generous about kind of advice. I think a lot of people who work in gardens are only too happy to help. Mm. So I think, it, it, you know, as you say, it is worth asking people because in some places, you know, you think, oh, we don't want to disturb them. But very often gardeners are just really happy to share their knowledge and say, oh, really, oh, you have that problem. Oh, yes, oh, well, I have that problem too. And this is what I do. You know. mm. Yeah, definitely. And you're saying about problems, uh, something else we, we always ask is, have you got any notable failures or things that really frustrated you that went wrong? Well, I think every um, every gardener I talk to has killed masses of plants. And this is something that I think, you know, newcomers we need to realise is if that plant dies, you know, maybe that plant is just always going to die because really experienced gardeners kill plants off. And so there's constantly failures here, there and everywhere. I, for example, have twice dug up my bed of Japanese anemones because I wanted to plant something else. And twice it's come back. 
And I have literally cleared every bit of Japanese anemones from that bed. And I mean, honestly, it's there. And actually, in the end, I just accepted that I have a bed of Japanese anemones. And it does seem to keep the weeds down there because there's much less weeding because it's such an invasive plant. So I think that that's one of the, the failures, as well as all the plants that have died over the years. Um, slightly struggling to keep the veg garden going at the moment, and I'm not quite sure why that is, but it hasn't been very successful. And I'm not, I used to grow masses of my own veg, and now it's just not working. And I don't know whether perhaps I'm a bit too busy to, to yeah. pay the daily attention that veg needs. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder whether that was a time time thing. You're You're very busy. And uh, I think actually that's one of the downsides with veg for a lot of people. It often does attract a new gardener, but it's probably, I would have said, certainly for me, the most time-consuming thing to, to grow in the garden. Yes, because you're constantly kind of fending off the pigeons, the snails and the slugs, and quite a lot of them do need some kind of fertiliser, even if you um, put a mulch on. And... You know, there's picking, keep keeping up with picking if you're not around. And I find potatoes pretty, pretty fail-proof, foolproof. Yeah. Yeah. Potatoes pretty foolproof, great. Beans, provided I can get them to the stage where they're growing properly, they're pretty foolproof. But quite a lot of the other veg don't really do very well for me at the moment. Hmm. It's been it's been quite a tricky year as well. It's been very odd. We have had periods of time that have been very good growing weather, but we've had some some very ups and downs in the weather um and i this one of the first things i asked you what was the weather like it's a it's the perennial question when it comes to gardening because it affects it so much it certainly does and actually i think that in some ways we almost had a kind of perfect um because we had a mix of it being quite warm and then being quite cool but not frost Mm. and then being warm again and then rain and then so if everything has gone along quite nicely this year, uh, we haven't had the hideous drought. I mean, last year's drought was just, mm. I mean, it's really worrying. I mean, here in Kent, we had nine weeks of drought. Oh, really? And that is quite difficult to keep. I, I mean, certainly the veg which needed watering every single day. And, and it, it's almost impossible to do that if you're very busy. Mm. Yeah, and if you're, you're planning even a short break, it becomes, um, you need very, very friendly neighbours. Yes. Well, there's also automated watering systems, and I have looked into those, and I think they would be ideal. I mean, I think if anyone's ever having any plumbing done in their kitchen, then thinking about automated watering systems and extra taps into which automated watering systems could be fitted outside would be a really good idea. Mm. But they're not that easy to set up if you've only got one garden tap, because you need to... Um, once a, an automated watering system is fixed to the tap, it, the tap needs to be on all the time, and then the automated watering system does the directing, which of course means you haven't got anywhere to fill up your hoses to wash the dog or your watering cans for the things that aren't being automated watering. Watering, so it, automated watering, I think, would be hugely helpful and would save quite a lot of water, but it does need planning and investment. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and when you're wandering around the garden, um, perhaps planning planning a blog or, or just having a, a look around, is there a particular tool or bit of equipment you always have with you? Um, yes. I think the one I am using the most is like a knife, but it has a square angle to it. Okay. Um, it's, 
it's very similar. A, a friend of mine had Japanese hori hori knives, and those are sort of quite sharp knives. Uh, they're almost like daggers. I don't suppose you could take one on a plane without being arrested. Um, but the one I find quite useful is it's got like a knife with a sharp angle, and Wolfgarten make one. At least the one I've got is made by Wolfgarten. Mm-hmm. And um, what's quite good is that you can kind of either scrape down between flagstones with it, but you can also turn that piece of equipment so that you can kind of wrinkle up the roots of weeds and things. Okay. I think after that, it's the full-size lady spade. I basically do no dig, um, which is the Charles Dowding um, mm. approach, which is that I don't dig anything unless I have to put a plant in or take a plant out. Um, I put a layer of mulch all over the garden every year, and I expect the sort of um, worms and insects to pull it all in and incorporate it. But even so, a spade is probably the most useful thing you could have because one's always having to dig up a plant or put one in. Yes, yeah, and we had Charles on the podcast, actually. And I have to say, I was very, very sceptical. Um, and now we've we've got to, end, to the end of our show season. I'm going to give it a go in a certain area of the garden. Um, but I said to him, my, my biggest thing with it is that I think for new gardens, it's brilliant. It's a great idea. Um, and... It works very, very well, definitely. Um, but I still can't get over the the vision of my granddad digging all day long. Um, and I think as, as gardeners, you tend to continue what the, the previous generations did. Yes, I think there's quite a lot. The other thing is, and this is a general thing with advice anyway, is that very often people just repeat the advice that they look up. Mm. And of course, and I, I mean, I noticed this throughout with, with women's magazines and things. One of the things about being on good housekeeping is that, that we were quite analytical about let's check whether you really do need to salt your aubergines or, you know, um, salt your courgettes and things. And for instance, things like salting aubergines probably came in when the original aubergines were maybe quite bitter. And of course, they've got different kinds of aubergine now. So it is quite important to look at advice and make sure it doesn't just get planted on. And mm. I would say, for instance, at the moment, it's worth remembering the business of cutting lavender back. That you'll often see, don't cut into the brown. And I used to not cut into the brown with my lavender, and it got terribly leggy, and it was never in a neat shape. So I started asking professional gardeners what they were doing with their lavender, and indeed consulting lavender-growing companies. And I discovered that actually you can cut your lavender back and you should cut your lavender back really quite hard. The only thing you need to worry about is to make sure that there are a few tiny little buds Mm. below where you cut. Mm. So you can go quite far into what we would call the brown, provided there are still a few buds underneath. And if you actually take a handful of lavender and you sort of pull it open and you look right down the stem, you will see these tiny little lavender things the size of a pinhole. And it, that will be a little bud. And as long as you stay above that, you can go really hard back. And my lavender looks quite brown after it's been cut. And then it regrows and then it's fine. And everybody who came to Open Gardens this year said, my God, how do you get your lavender like that back like that? And I said, well, I just cut it back really hard. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's quite interesting. And, and what's done in a a garden compared to what's done commercially can be very very different i think sometimes people would be um be amazed that plants thrive under the conditions that sometimes a commercial grower will put them under i mean i was um 
just on the nursery um, just before um, we started talking uh, and my dad's taking um, cutting back some herbs um, with a massive pair of shears. These are plug plants, mm. just literally chopping them all the way back. Um, mm. And not because he's having a bad day. That's, <laughs> that is just literally what how we do it. And you get a such such a good plant from it. Um, so it's it's interesting. And sometimes when I see um, programs and and things on YouTube where they're being very very delicate around plants and stuff like that, um, I think that can put people off. And sometimes actually doesn't get the results. Absolutely. And I mean it's the same with um, roses. I did a study with I did a study last year just to, for the blog and YouTube channel, about the difference between pruning the roses individually and taking shears to them. And uh, in the end, the ones I took shears to took longer to come back than the ones I pruned individually. But they did come back, and they came back just as good. And I almost think if you've got the patience, that if you have a whole row of roses, for example, you should perhaps alternate shears and and individual pruning because the individual pruning ones came back earlier but of course they were over quicker and then of course with the shears they came back later so it's, it's quite interesting that there's always lots of different ways of doing things yeah. and in your um, pot is the other thing I think Rich did something a few years ago to test whether you really needed to put crocs in the bottom of pots and they came to the conclusion that you didn't and then they pointed out the commercial growers didn't put crocs in the bottom of their pots and of course, you wouldn't have time, would you, if you're no. growing 500 plants to put crops in the bottom of every pot? No, definitely not. And there's interesting um, concerns that commercial growers have that um, that people who visit garden centres wouldn't even have thought about. And one of them's weight. Um, the problem is you can only get so many plants on a vehicle. And if you put mm. pottery pots on or, or something in there that's too heavy... Um, it causes massive problems, and I do think that's one of the demises of loam in in commercial growing is to do with weight. Mm. Um, it's the mm. same with grit and things like that as well, because grit wrecks your machinery. Um, mm. So, so yeah. you don't tend to find commercial growers using grit. Sometimes you'll get alpine growers who are top dressed with it, um, but yeah. they'll be keeping it away from their. It, it gets in the cogs of your potting machines and stuff like that, and and basically would cost you an absolute fortune. Um, mm. So it's interesting. I suppose to a certain extent, the the commercial growers has to find a way around it to try and do the same thing. Yeah, I mean the thing is with the grit, is I always think it looks really smart on the top of pots. Mm. So um, I do think it looks great, and I've just tried to do. But I can quite see that if you had lots and lots and lots of pots, uh, that would add to the weight, and it would certainly get into everything and damage your machinery. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, so where can people find out about the Middle Size Garden? Well, it's the middlesizegarden.co.uk is the blog. And on YouTube, it's called the Middle Size Garden. And um, so really, it's just a question of put the Middle Size Garden into a search box. And on the whole, up I will pop. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people can subscribe to either of them uh, just by leaving their email address or clicking subscribe. And uh, it would be lovely if they did. Yes, excellent. And you, you mentioned you've you've got uh, fiction and non-fiction books. Are they mentioned on the blog as well? Uh, yes, um, to a point, somewhere probably. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, my my fiction books are under the name either Alexander Campbell or Nina Bell, and my non-fiction books. Um, the most recent one of those is probably called Upcycled Chic, and 
I did it with the stylist Liz Burns and the photographer Simon Brown. And that's part of a series which is Thrifty Chic, Upcycle Chic, Simply Chic. And it's all about um, upcycling and recycling and using vintage and just creating interiors with kind of not by spending lots of money. Although occasionally people point out, because obviously we film people's houses, that there are expensive things in those houses. And one of the things I think about recycling and reusing and everything is that it's just a good idea generally. And secondly, with any luck, it frees up enough money for you to actually spend some money on something big. Mm. Because quite often if you, for instance, are building a new terrace, if you can actually buy the very best materials you can afford, then that will be much, you know, and then not spend any money on plants, just sort of bog be- beg, borrow or steal plants <laughs> until you've got the money for plants. I think that's probably a better way around from doing it rather than thinking, oh, I've got to economise on everything, you know, mm. blow the budget on something really brilliant and preferably something that's very permanent, like a terrace or a fence or a wall or something like that. Mm. And then just let other things develop as you can afford them. Excellent. Yes, that's a really, really good tip. Um, thank you for, for joining us on the podcast. It's been really nice to chat to you. Um, you're a wealth of, of knowledge, um, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me. No problem at all. We'll make sure we put um, links um, to your, your blog and your YouTube um, as well uh, in the show notes for the podcast. Um, so, yeah, exactly. Well, much. and also send it to me, and then I'll put it out on my you know various channels and things. Oh, it's very kind of you. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us on the Plants and Me podcast. We'll be back soon. If you can't get enough of all things plant-related, pop over to plants-uk.co.uk. And if you enjoy our podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.